Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely concerned about the impact of our energy system on Earth's climate and how policy, in combination with new energy technologies, will drive the transformation toward a zero-carbon energy system. Yet it's clear today that there are many who, for a variety of reasons, do not share the same sense of climate urgency. I often find myself asking what it will take to get the whole country on the same page when it comes to climate change and the need to reduce carbon emissions. And I've assumed that with increasing flooding and wildfires touching communities, more people will inevitably embrace climate policies. This assumption that a personal understanding of risk drives action often forms the basis of communication strategies that aim to build support for climate policies, such as government incentives for clean energy. On today's podcast, we'll explore why this seemingly common sense connection between a personal view of climate risk and support for climate policy may not be as direct as we think. In fact, new research suggests very little connection. My guest is Madel Mildenberger, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Maddow's work focuses on the political drivers of policy in action in the face of climate change. He has also uncovered surprising misconceptions about the connection between personal politics and support for clean energy. And he's explored what these findings may mean for future efforts to build support for climate policy. Maddow, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, Joe Biden has put climate change near the top of the list of priorities for his administration, uh, reportedly just behind fighting COVID and on par with issues including the economy and racial equity. Yet a recent uh, Pew Research poll that in fact came out in late January suggests that Americans on the whole don't rank climate as highly as the new president. How real is this divide in prioritization of climate change? Um I don't think it's quite that stark. Um, I, I think there's certainly polarization in this country, as I'm sure everyone is well aware by this point, where Democrats are prioritizing this issue considerably relative to Republicans. And we saw evidence of that in the primary, um, where climate change was really one of the, the top button issues shaping uh, Democratic primary votes and debates. Um, what, what I do think is the case, though, is that the the Biden administration sees um, climate change and economic inequality and COVID as sort of linked crises and sees the the policies that will address one as being the policies that will address all uh, of these crises. And, and in fact, you know, to the degree that the public is sort of urgently demanding or, or seeing the need for COVID relief and, and economic recovery support in the very short term, I don't think that changes the degree to which for many Democrats in particular, climate change is right there in the mix. Um, I've actually done some work, some of it published in uh, environmental research letters last year and, and uh, looking at to what degree does adding, for instance, economic policy considerations into a climate package? Does that make the climate package more popular? And, and we find the answer is yes. So that's a bit of the underlying logic of the Green New Deal. Um, and then we just published a brief over the summer looking at COVID recovery packages. And what we found is that including climate-related, for instance, infrastructure spending, 
um, around, say, clean energy infrastructure in a COVID recovery package makes the COVID recovery package more popular. So I think in some ways the Biden administration has its pulse on the way in which the American public wants to see these crises managed uh, jointly. They, they want the government to sort of walk and chew gum at the same time. And I actually think that, you know, there's, there's good evidence that this type of joint approach to managing these major existential threats we face is quite popular, even if it's um, somewhat more muted when you ask people to rank, is COVID more important than climate? Um, I think that's not the right way to think about what the political incentives are for the, the current um, folks in D.C., where I, I do actually think there are political rewards for tackling climate alongside COVID and economic recovery. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you put that connection together. So Biden has been very clear on that, right? He's highlighted climate change as presenting an opportunity to address some of the economic damages of, of COVID. Uh, now, does your research show that linking two issues together, in fact, builds policy support in this case for, for climate policy? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I, I'd say that many people think it's good policy to integrate these um, domains together. Right? We're going to need to spend an enormous amount to stimulate the economy as we come out of this, um, you know, this economic crisis. Uh, and that's an opportunity to spend money not on what we've done in the past, but where we want to go in the future. You know, rather than, um, as the Trump administration did, you know, bailing out fossil fuel companies as part of um, you know, economic recovery, we can invest in the type of clean energy future that is necessary to protect our climate. So it's good policy. But what our research shows is that it's not only good policy, it's also good politics. Um, and so exactly as you say, um, we, we do, for instance, survey experiments where um, we have members of the public choose between different policy packages. And those policy packages vary in, for instance, whether they integrate climate and COVID in the same package or whether they just focus on COVID on their own, sort of COVID recovery on its own. And what we find is that systematically, by integrating climate-related considerations into the economic recovery package into the COVID response package that that increases political support. It makes the um, you know the overall COVID recovery package more popular. So we have really clear evidence that you increase the size of the political coalition that's willing to support ambitious policy and ambitious spending, for instance, in a COVID package, if you also take this opportunity to tackle this looming threat of climate change, for instance, through, you know, investment in transmission or clean energy or wind and solar and, and all of these other mitigation efforts that we, we know are necessary over the next decade. Now, it's interesting, again, so those, those linkages are very important, but it's interesting that much of your recent research over the last couple of years has looked at something a little bit different, and that is the connection between personal experience of climate impacts and the willingness to support policy uh, solutions, uh, policy-based solutions to climate change. And as I said in the beginning of this, there's kind of an assumption that I carry around, and I assume that I'm not alone, that direct experience, again, with severe weather events like wildfires and floods drives people to become very concerned about climate change and uh, demand action to address it. So, again, your research calls this assumption into question. Um, before we get into the findings, can you tell us why this assumption may, may be so compelling? Well, for a very long time, climate change was a distant threat. 
It was something that was going to be shaping the lives of our children, uh, future generations, or perhaps people who lived in countries in the global south that felt very distant to Americans. And there was an assumption that as the impacts of climate change began to realize, that distance would get eroded and people would begin to think of climate change not as something that my children or other people have to confront, but something that's already shaping my life today in the here and now. And, um, you know, there's been really um, significant advances in climate attribution science to sort of find the spatial fingerprint of climate change and some of the extreme weather events that we're already experiencing in the U.S. today. And of course, the impacts of climate change are already here and intensifying. And so for, for many years, there was an assumption that, well, when we get to this point where climate change is no longer a distant threat, but it's a proximate threat, it's something in the here and now, that's going to sort of reshape the calculus. It's going to reshape the politics of climate change and sort of mobilize our political system into action. And, uh, or at least that was the hope. And so as a, you know, I'm a political scientist. Um, and so now climate change is here, right? Climate change is not just a distant threat. It's something that's disrupting all of our lives in the here and now. It, we can begin to see whether empirically that's the case. You know, are these experiences with climate change that people have, are they actually driving the type of um, shifts that might break the political gridlock that has characterized climate policymaking and energy policymaking over the last decade. So has research to date supported this cause and effect relationship between experience of natural disasters, personal experience, and growing concern about climate change? Yes and no, right? So, so as with all good research answers, it's complicated, uh, but it's complicated in a really interesting way. So I've done some work recently looking at the distribution of wildfires in California and looking at how exposure to a wildfire shapes people's voting behavior and their preferences for different energy policies. Um, and so California is obviously one of the states in the country that has a, a lot of ballot initiatives where each election cycle, the public is not only asked to vote for who they want to represent them in Sacramento or in D.C., um, but also asked to opine directly on, you know, do you want to see a, you know, this type of clean energy policy? Do you want to see investments in this type of energy infrastructure? And even when there was a big debate over the, the state's carbon pollution reduction targets around AB 32, um, do you want to see the state sort of have this ambitious climate policy or not? So what I did with my, my colleague, Chad Hazlett, who's at UCLA, is we, we looked at the spatial distribution of all wildfires um, across the state over a, you know, several election cycles and aligned that with the um, you know, votes on various climate and energy-related ballot initiatives to see you know, if I'm living in a small electoral precinct, you know, the 200 or 400 people in my precinct, if, if those folks are um, exposed directly to a wildfire, does that shape my willingness to invest in or support costly government policy through these ballot initiatives? And here's the top line. Here's what we found. So the answer is yes. We see about a five to or so percentage point increase in support for costly energy and climate policies after exposure to a wildfire across the entire state. 
Um, and we do a lot of work in this paper to sort of make sure we're really getting at cause and effect so that we can really say that it's the wildfire exposure itself which is causing this increase in, um, in ballot support. But it's really heterogeneous where we're finding all of that effect being concentrated in precincts and parts of the state that ha are predominantly Democrat, that have a, an above average number of Democratic voters. Whereas we look at the electoral precincts in parts of the state that are more Republican and tend to have more Republican voters, we see a, a complete flat line, no responsiveness, no shift in people's voting or opinion preferences as a result of this experience. So what we're actually seeing is that this direct experience is not really moving everyone towards a sort of common shared purpose of addressing climate change. It's actually polarizing the public further. And it's making Democrats who already accept climate science and support climate policy, it's ratcheting up their commitment to this and making them uh, more committed to climate policy, helping them prioritize this issue and making them more willing to pay to, to invest in costly solutions, whereas we're seeing essentially a no responsiveness on the Republican side. And to go back to your first question, this is actually pretty consistent with the political story in D.C. right now, where over the last two years, we've actually seen the prioritization of energy and climate policy ratchet up within the Democratic Party, as reflected in, you know, uh, President Biden really being the first climate president that we've ever had, who's trying to address this existential threat at the scale of the crisis, while we, you know, have not seen a lot of movement on the Republican side, and if anything, the polarization over the last five years within the Republican Party on this issue has only deepened. Let me ask you a question. It's very interesting what you bring up. I, I recall reading that research, and a couple of things hit me. One is that the uh, you said that the exposure to a wildfire would make someone, particularly if they were a Democrat, more likely to support policy. That was actually a very specific effect, though, because I think that was, if I recall the research correctly, there was a 5% or so increase in tendency to support that policy if you were within three miles of the fire itself. So, you know, I, I, I'm no expert on this by any means, but almost that immediate, you know, ex exposure would make me think that that number would be much higher. Number two, if we're looking at the Republicans who you say didn't have any response, is there any um, insight that you can provide into how they're connecting these, you know, these these severe climate impacts, uh, you know, with what they're seeing? Is, are they attributing it to something else? What's going on there? Yeah, I think um, this is a really good question. Um, so to to think a little bit about how people are being exposed, yes, so we find that the, the strongest effect of the wildfire exposure on voting outcomes amongst Democrats is right at the, you know, right adjacent to the wildfire itself. And then as you move away from the wildfire to sort of, you know, 25, 30 miles away, then that effect is going to decay. And, you know, by the time you're a certain distance away from the wildfire, then it, it no longer is a personal experience in quite the same way. People don't appear to um, to sort of view it as a personal experience if it's happening to, you know, the, the other part of the state. Um, now, as to the question of, of why Republicans may be non-responsive, you know, I think that's actually a really important point that we don't appreciate enough. 
So in order to interpret an event like a wildfire that I experience as um, in order for that to, to drive a shift in my political behavior and my attitudes and my preferences, I have to understand my experience as climate related, right? So I need to see this wildfire and interpret this wildfire as something that has the fingerprint of climate change uh, in it. Now, um, in general, the media has not done a very good job of keeping up with advances in climate attribution science. And so generally speaking, the, the storytelling that we have in our society around the role of climate change in sort of our day-to-day -day lives is, uh, is pretty weak. That's only really begun to change in the last year or two. Um, but, you know, even four or five years ago, if you look at the sort of the studies that have been done, um, uh, extreme events, extreme weather events that climate scientists felt did have, you know, th that could be attributed in part to climate change were not being discussed um, with that context in, you know, a lot of the mainstream media reporting. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that if I don't accept that, you know, climate science, if I don't accept that, you know, climate change is shaping our, our environment and the conditions in which we live, that I'm not going to interpret or make sense of an experience like a wildfire as being a climate-related event, right? If I'm not even thinking about this event as climate-related, if I'm just saying there's always been wildfires and I'm not appreciating the science which shows that the intensity and frequency of those fires are being exacerbated by climate change, um, well, then I'm unlikely or, you know, there's no reason to think that I'm going to change my mind. And this, this sort of creates a, a dynamic where we might expect that these direct experiences could ratchet up support for climate policy and clean energy policy amongst communities that already are predisposed to care about this, that already accept the science of climate change. But they're not going to convert skeptics or, or not, not going to convert people who aren't already, you know, um, potential climate supporters just need that activation. L let me just give one other example of this same phenomenon just to, to make sure that we don't see it entirely as a sort of a Democratic versus Republican story. You know, there are many impacts of climate change yeah, or even the impacts of wildfires that are much more indirect, right? So for instance, uh, the electricity system in, in California has just been roiled by uh, wildfire risks and the need to do planned uh, power safety shutoffs over the last year or two. Um, as you know, in, in 2019, uh, the fall of 2019, there was a particularly extreme example of this where PG&E in the Northern California had to, um, you know, over a, a sequence of different shutoffs had to kill power for, you know, up to a million households um, in, just in order to sort of manage wildfire risks and ensure that, you know, uh, electrical electricity transmission infrastructure wasn't sort of sparking fires in sort of high risk fire conditions. Now, you know, climate change, to the degree that climate change is exacerbating wildfire risks in the state, as climate attribution scientists suggest is the case, then it's also the case that climate change is exacerbating or intensifying the the need to have more frequently these types of large scale power safety shutoff events. But the public 
is not necessarily going to understand the linkage between these two. People are not going to experience that power safety shutoff and think, well, actually climate change is contributing in its small part to this this sort of extreme crisis that I'm that I'm part of. And so we've done some work where we've surveyed people who are chest inside or chest outside those outage boundaries, trying to make sense of, you know, among people who experience these power outages across uh, Northern California in 2019, how did their attitudes towards energy infrastructure, uh, utility company liability, um, how did all of that change as a result of experiencing this crisis? Right. And we don't find any effect on, for instance, climate concern, either on Republicans or Democrats, because in this case, even Democrats are not understanding their experience as really sort of being a direct function of climate change. It's too indirect. And so there was lots of media conversations and sort of advocates saying, well, look, like the entire state of California is in the dark, partly because of climate change. Now we'll get serious about it. Um, but that's not how people are understanding their lived experiences. People aren't e making that connection. Yeah, because it's a little indirect, right? Right. It's not climate change in the wildfire itself, which Democrats can make the connection to. This is sort of, you know, a second order, a more indirect pathway. And so as climate change intensifies, we know that its effects are not just going to be felt in these sort of one-off crises events. We're going to have all sorts of cascading, intermingled, complex follow on repercussions. And it's not entirely clear that people are making or are going to be able to make that connection in a sufficiently clear way that, it, that it's going to really drive, you know, changes in our political discourse. You know, I want to step back for just a moment to that research that you described in California with the wildfires and, and, and people's reaction to that. Now, that that doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. Uh, you've also done some meta-analysis uh, of previous research that explored, again, how weather might influence climate opinions. And the conclusions that you drew from that work, which looked at, I think, 73 papers on the topic, were also mixed. Were there any additional insights that we might get out of, out of that analysis? Yeah, so there's been quite a work, quite a bit of work done in sort of economics, political science, public policy, trying to see how people understand the extreme weather that they're increasingly faced with, and how does that shape their attitudes towards climate change. And overall, you know, I think a lot of people just assume that there is a, a clear empirical relationship between you know experiencing climate change and your attitudes towards the issue. Um, but the results, as you point out, are, are quite a bit more ambiguous. Um, there certainly is an effect. For instance, um, if you fill out a survey on a, a hotter day, you're more likely to report that you believe in climate change and you accept climate science. Um, but the, the effects are somewhat ephemeral. Um, and a lot of them are uh, very much focused on short-term shifts in attitudes. Um, for instance, attitudes towards climate change, there's actually very little work that looks at behavioral intentions and political behaviors and, and really tries to see if any of these experiences are also translating into um, intended shifts in your adaptation behaviors, intended shifts in your political support for different policies, and so on and so forth. So, you know, we certainly find that there isn't sort of clear-cut evidence that um, 
that you know these direct experiences are um, you know reshaping politics. And if anything, there's a a couple of caveats that we need to keep in mind. Right. What one is that there's actually quite a bit of good work showing that people become very, so to speak, acclimatized to current conditions. So, you know, uh, there's some great work that, that comes out of uh, Fran Moore at UC Davis, looking at how, for instance, people on Twitter, the degree to which they're remarking about extreme weather events, right, and finding that as extreme weather events become more normalized, um, they sort of become less remarkable. And we might expect that, you know, people are calibrating their expectations so that they are no longer realizing how unusual, you know, particular climate related um, events are. And in fact, this is a there's a broader psychological literature that points to the same issues in a variety of different environmental contexts where, for instance, people who face a inherently more polluted environment sort of shift their baseline and expectations about what an unpolluted environment is. And. You know, frankly, if we think even back, you know, 150 years, just think about the the plenitude which existed even in North America, in our wilderness, in our wild spaces, from passenger pigeons to, you know, the the Great Plains bison to the extraordinary salmon runs along the the east coast of the Atlantic, right? All, all of that is gone, and yet it, it's sort of a historical footnote. It's not something we experience most of us as a loss. And so to the degree that it's sort of this sense of loss that is converting direct experience to action, we may just calibrate to the new, a new world in which that loss is just part of our normal far too quickly as a society. And you can imagine how, how problematic this is, because if we keep on calibrating to these losses as being normal, we, we end up in sort of a, a downward spiral to sort of the, the worst existentially threatening climate scenarios that, you know, that we're being warned about. You know, you, what you just described brought to mind also a picture. I saw a picture once, I think it was taken during the 1920s of Ernest Hemingway holding fish that he'd caught, I believe in the Gulf of Mexico, and they were huge. And the, and the subtext here was that these fish don't even exist anymore, at least at this size. And it makes me think about kind of the generational context. So we as a generation today, right, we, we see the environment around us and we think whatever is there is normal. We don't really necessarily have a concept of what might have been before. When we look at climate, the assumption is that young people are concerned about their climate. They don't want things you know, bad things to happen are, are more activists on the on these fronts often. But if what each generation is brought into is the new norm, does that dilute the the power of action over time? Well, I I certainly think that there are. Um, there are people in older generations who are not grappling with the full scope of the climate crisis, even though this has very much happened in their lifetimes. Um, I think that if we look at younger generations today, it's not just that they have to cope with a certain amount of loss in sort of the the plenitude that exists in our our natural spaces, you know, um, they're facing an existential threat from climate change, right? They they do not have any reason to expect that their quality of life 
is going to be better in 25 years than it is today. And, and frankly, I feel the same way, right? This is not just people who are, you know, in high school today. Um, it, you know, I, I think many, many, many people have sort of legitimate concerns that we are at a tipping point and the next, say, 10 years are going to be make or break in whether or not we get this existential threat under control or not. And, and, and you know, from my perspective, the, the question is no longer whether there are going to be devastating climate impacts. There are going to be devastating climate impacts. Um, the question is no longer, are we going to lose some of the sort of things that we hold dear in our wilderness? Are we going to cause immense suffering for people around the world? Yes, we are. Um, the, the question is, how much of that suffering can we alleviate? How much can we save? And I think that, you know, younger generations right now just feel that sense of wanting to alleviate suffering and save what we can really acutely. And I, and I don't think that that is, that sense is going to be undermined by sort of calibration in sort of the, the new normal. Um, I, I think that, you know, we ought not to calibrate our understandings of this problem to normalize suffering. In many ways, like that is what the sort of history of environmental injustice has been for the last 30 or 40 years, right? Where as a society, um, powerful people and people in positions of decision making have essentially normalized the notion that, you know, people in fence line communities and communities of color should essentially be holding and taking on the health harms of pollution for everyone else, right? And literally subsidizing the quality of life of more affluent white, for instance, Americans with the, the bodies of people in these fence line communities and communities of color. And so that has been this extraordinary calibration and normalization of like this fundamentally unjust and sort of racist system of energy production. Um, we, we cannot let that type of calibration happen for climate too, we need to actually disrupt in all of these different systems and all of the different ways in which we're thinking about how we produce and use energy. Um, you know, we, we need to disrupt these assumptions about what is normal. In that vein, and, and to spin this forward, you've done some research that looks beyond current direct experience with weather-related damages that have already taken place and instead explores how communicating the risk of future damage to people's homes and communities might motivate them to support climate policy. Here, too, the finding has been that it's unclear that this strategy, again, of communicating future risk is effective in driving support for climate policy. Can you talk about uh, those findings? Yeah, so so I've, I've, I've talked about some of the work that, that I'm doing looking at, well, does the actual experiences we have with climate change shape our energy policy preferences, right? How does that shape our interest in, um, you know, adopting EVs or, you know, uh, putting solar panels on a roof or, or any of these behaviors that broadly our policy systems are trying to incentivize right now? There's another tack, and this is a tactic that, that a number of sort of uh, government agencies and also NGOs have taken, which is, well, what if we try and make the future impacts of climate change more salient to people today? Can that cause them to prioritize this issue more? And this has particularly been a tactic that's been used in communicating risks associated with sea level rise. 
So there's been a number of efforts now to create these interactive online tools that offer people the ability to say project sea level rise in their coastal community through 2100 and see where science predicts the you know the new coastline will will fall absent you know hardening investments slash mitigation behaviors um, you might have seen like there's a surging seas initiative and noaa has some stuff mm -hmm. that that sort of exists in this communication space and so we've run a bunch of experimental work where we show people sort of these risk maps tailored for their specific address. And, and what we find is that actually these communication tools are also having an unexpectedly ambiguous set of effects. So if I'm someone who lives just outside the flood zone, I'm someone who say is like 100 meters away from being flooded by 2100, and I receive a map that shows that sort of flood risk to me, it reduces my concern about sea level rise for me personally and for my community, right? And so what one, one way of thinking about this is that I had some abstract generic concern about climate change, but then I got this very concrete specific piece of information and that made it an individual risk. And I just began thinking about it like, is my basement gonna be flooded or not? And that began to dominate my thinking about this issue. I wasn't appreciating increased commute times. I wasn't appreciating the risk to my water infrastructure um, and sewage infrastructure. And I certainly wasn't um, thinking about this risk in a way which um, would facilitate collective action by, um, you know, giving me a sense of linked fate with my neighbors on this same map that I'm seeing are going to be flooded by 2100. Now, people who are right inside the flood zone, who we show maps to, whose basements are actually being flooded are not elevating their concern seriously either. So Wait, those are people who are already being flooded or people who see that definitively they will be flooded? People who see they definitively will be flooded, right? So these risk maps are not alone adequate to catalyze the type of action which we might hope. Right. And so we're left with a, a situation where this effort to to show people and visualize direct experience to people um, is having a backlash effect and in particular not having the effect we want. So now the next step in this project is we thought to ourselves, OK, so these individualized risk maps are not offering the type of communication benefits that advocates have hoped. What if we try and directly communicate systemic risks rather than individual risks? Or more precisely, why don't we communicate to, to people what their systemic risk exposure is? So not whether they're basement floods or not, but how are they going to be inconvenienced by the, you know, the really extraordinary anticipated impacts of sea level rise on coastal infrastructure. So we did an experiment in the Bay Area. Similarly, we were sort of recruiting people into our survey who live just inside this flood boundary and just outside it. And we, you know, used a sort of a, a fairly high powered traffic model to understand uh, commuting patterns for every census tract in the Bay Area. And then we could project with sea level rise what roadways would be um, flooded and then recalculate the average census tract um, commute time under this new flooded sea level rise scenario. And we gave that information to our respondents in an experiment. Now, what we found is, is that if you discover that your 
commute time, inconvenience is, is less than the median. In the, in the Bay Area, it was a, an 11-minute median increase in commute time under a 2100 um, sea level rise scenario. That had the same backlash effect. You became less concerned about sea level rise and less concerned about it in both your community and personally. Um, by contrast, people who discovered that they were going to be extremely inconvenienced um, in terms of their commute time by sea level rise, we did see a slightly um, elevated concern um, for themselves, but not others, right? So in other words, even the systemic risk communication was having ambiguous effects. And for every positive effect, you might sort of glimmer, uh, sort of squint and see, you can equally make a case that that you know these sorts of tools are undermining our ability to sort of have social solidarity um, and so you know the take-home message here is that it's not clear to us that um, the the most impactful way to sort of reshape the politics of say clean energy reshape the politics of climate change reshape public willingness to invest in the type of energy infrastructure that we need you know uh, making salient some of these personal effects of climate change and direct experiences with climate change in the future isn't sort of having the isn't the driver of you know breaking political gridlock that we want it to be in fact there there's some concerning backlash effects that we even need to think about interesting so direct experience with with climate impacts doesn't seem to do it okay understanding future risk doesn't seem to do it and even going a step further and looking how it might influence your life or inconvenience your life beyond just pumping out your basement also doesn't seem to do it so all these again these are kind of common sense things that we would all think would would spur people to action so i i guess a, coming out of this what are the recommendations or how how should we handle these communications going forward? What is potentially more more um, more forceful and constructive? Well, I think political scientists have a sort of a strong sense of what a better strategy is, um, and uh, the good news is that I increasingly see this as being the political strategy that advocates and politicians in D.C. are taking. Right. So for a very long time. We've been having public debates and dialogues around climate policy that have been very cost-centered, right? We've been talking about short-term costs, and we've been making those extremely salient. They've become sort of the object of political debate, and we've backgrounded and not really done a lot of work to bring the benefits of acting into the public domain. And this has also been the case with the particular types of policies that we've chosen to support, right? We've not had, um, for instance, federal climate reforms that have centered the benefits of acting for, you know, the average American. The better approach is not to rely on experiences with climate impacts to be some silver bullet that is going to sort of reshape public attitudes. Advocates speak, for instance, about what, what's called a standards investment justice approach to energy policymaking, where we articulate a vision for where we want to go. We might think about President Biden's commitment to sort of a 100% clean energy by 2035. That's coupled with an enormous amount of investment in communities, in people to, to provide the, you know, the type of forward-looking benefit-centered sales pitch 
to the public around climate policy. And then a focus on justice, because it's also important that we not normalize all of the inequities that exist in our current energy system. And that that type of um, standards investment justice approach, I think, has an enormous amount of political benefits. And, you know, to go back to the very first question that we were talking about early in our conversation, you know, we've actually been empirically finding that integrating these benefits, integrating, for instance, you know, climate change into um, any, a COVID recovery package or integrating minimum wage um, policy into a climate package, right? These have increasing returns, right? These are making everyone happier. It is increasing the pie uh, in terms of political coalitional support. Um, and, you know, even when uh, for instance, there isn't strong Republican support for some of these energy and climate related issues. It rarely reduces Republican support, right? So if we look at, for instance, all sorts of different clean energy standards or clean energy investments, um, sometimes they bring some Republicans along. Often the, the political benefits of including them um, come from substantially increasing Democratic support for the policy, including amongst um, you know, historically underrepresented communities and fence line communities who are sort of suffering many of the, the worst injustices um, surrounding our energy system. But it's not antagonizing Republicans, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we, we include climate policy in the COVID recovery bill. It makes the COVID recovery bill a lot more popular with Democrats, and it makes it just as popular with Republicans. So we have this real opportunity through sort of this integration to to build our political coalition rather than polarizing it further. And, you know, I, I really do think that in looking at the priorities of the Biden administration, the priorities of the, you know, that Majority Leader Schumer has articulated in his sort of strong commitment to ensuring that this policymaking window involves acting on climate and energy in the next, you know, several months, you know, I think this is a political win-win. Um, where the climate can win, we can see sort of real investments in decarbonization and transforming our energy infrastructure um, while protecting people's health, protecting people's livelihoods and quality of life. You know, there, there's a real opportunity here to sell them on the benefits of action, yeah. sell them on the benefits of a clean energy system, the jobs that are going to exist, the improved quality of life, the um, the you know the correction of historic injustices and who is being exposed to pollution, like sell them on all of this, um, not on the fear of a future risk, which is unlikely to you know shift their perceptions and attitudes in the empirical evidence that we've examined really carefully today. Matto, thanks very much for talking. Yeah, thank you for having me. Today's guest has been Matto Mildenberger, assistant professor of political science at the University of California at Santa Barbara. You've been listening to Energy Policy Now from the Kleiman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may also like other episodes, all of which are available on the Kleiman Center's website and major podcast outlets, including Apple Podcasts. We have a recent episode on Janet Yellen's likely moves to address climate change as the new U.S. Treasury Secretary. There's our podcast on Europe's strategy to grow its hydrogen energy industry as part of its plan to go carbon neutral by mid-century. And we also have a recent episode on the challenge of developing electricity storage that's capable of balancing wind and solar power over months at a time. 
You can get updates on all the latest insights from the Climate Center by subscribing to our monthly newsletter on our homepage. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. Thank you.